Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Um, thank you for being here this morning. We are in the middle of a series this this fall on the book of Deuteronomy, but we're using the Ten Commandments uh, to kind of go after the book of Deuteronomy. So we've been looking at a command a week for the last few weeks. Uh, we come this morning to the Seventh Commandment. And so we've got to talk about sex. Um, parents, I'm going to do the best job I can. I had to really, I don't know if you, I mean, the catechism gets uncomfortable, I'll be honest. And I had to kind of cut some things out just for the sake of the little ears. Uh, but I'm going to do my best to keep this rated PG. I don't know that I can go any further than that. Um, but we, this is, you know, it's going to be fun. Uh, when I was younger, uh, when, I've never done this before. I've never had to do, I've never had to talk about this. And, and it, it is somewhat of a taboo, um, you know, subject. When I was young, and a youth pastor, uh, and I had teenagers I was responsible for. I thought I had all kinds of great advice about sex. And then I became a father. And I realized my great advice was actually terrible advice. Then I became a daddy of little girls. And I realized what a complete and utter idiot I was. So, to set the record straight at the beginning, so you can kind of know where I'm coming from, I believed in arranged marriages. among other things, and we'll go from there. Uh, let's look at this passage in Deuteronomy, from Deuteronomy chapter 22 and 23, but then also going back and picking up the command in Deuteronomy 5, verses 6 and 18. So it's, it's printed for you in your worship folder, uh, and then it'll be on the screen behind me as well. If you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, it'll be kind of difficult because we'll be going from place to place, but you're welcome to try. So let's read together this morning, beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 5. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall not commit adultery. You shall purge the evil from your midst. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman She has committed no offense, punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days." Deuteronomy 23, no one who has been emasculated shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. When you're encamped against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. If a man among you becomes unclean, Then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp. But when evening comes, he shall bathe himself in water as the sun sets. And he may come inside the camp. 
You shall have a place. This gets kind of graphic. Again, I tried to do my best. You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it, and you shall have a trowel with with your tools. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole in it and turn back and cover up your excrement. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give you give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. This is God's word. Now, <clears throat> there is a repetitive phrase in Deuteronomy 22 that I, I put in italics there for you in verse 21, 22 and 24. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Uh, There is a larger concern before we get to the issue of sex. There is a larger concern in this passage for the ritual purity and holiness of the camp. In fact, Deuteronomy 23 that we read there just a second ago is a long list of the categories of people who were to be excluded or to be cast out, kept outside of the camp. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 23, it talks about, in, in verse 2 and 3, it talks about the assembly of the Lord. And that's a technical term there, that word assembly, for God's people as they are gathered together to be in his presence, either as a people that are gathered together to worship or as a people who are gathered, gather, gathered together to go to war. So the assembly was God's people gathered together, called together by God for a unique purpose, and therefore the assembly had to be holy. Certain offenses caused people to be excluded. And the main idea is really Israel's distinctiveness from the other nations around them. Castration, for example, which is mentioned there in verse one of chapter 23, was part of the religious vows of the other pagan cultures. And so there was a there was a concern that Israel be holy, set apart and distinct from the nations that surrounded. And the reason for this is given in this verse, chapter chapter 23, verse 14, which is such a. It's so overwhelming, the metaphor there, and and the language is so powerful to me. Uh, And Moses says, the reason you have to to go after this ritual purity is that the Lord, God himself, walks in the midst of the camp, and he is holy, and therefore the camp must be holy, or he will be forced to turn away or to leave. You see that in verse 14, way down at the bottom of your sheet? The language is powerful. God walks in the middle of of the Israelites to deliver them and to fight for them. And his presence is the sign of his favor, of his being for them, to do good for them. He's there to bless them. The problem was, is that any impurity or inappropriate behavior would force him to turn away from them. You see that. The implication there is that he'd no longer be for them. He'd be against them. He'd no longer fight for them. He'd fight against them. And you can't read that. I mean, you can't. You can't read that and except to hear the echoes of the story in Genesis chapter 1 where it said that God at the very dawn of creation came to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve and to talk with them in the cool of the day. God's presence, his nearness to us. Now, there's a parallel statement in the first chapter of Revelation at the very end of our scriptures where John, the apostle, pictures the churches in Asia Minor as lampstands. And then he says... And I quote from John from Revelation 113. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like the son of man. Now, if you're not a Christian, we want to say to you, we believe that Jesus walks among us. The Bible says that when we gather here to worship, when we come together in homes for community groups, he is in our midst. And therefore, because that's true, because we believe God is here, 
walking among us. Therefore, we should strive for the kind of purity and heart devotion that would allow him to draw near to us, to bless us, and we should be careful not to sin against him to cause him to turn away. So I say all that to say, uh, to make this summary statement, it matters how you live. It matters how you live. If we want to be if we want to be a people whom the Lord fights for to deliver, then it matters how we live. If you want your home to be a place where God dwells, it matters how you live. You have to make it a habitation for him. If you want to live in his blessing, if you want to experience the quality of life and relationships that you've been made for, then it matters how you live. What you believe has to begin to work itself into the nitty gritty of your everyday life. And the teaching of the scriptures has to begin to impact your life at the most fundamental levels and influence the decisions that you make 100 percent obedience that's our goal it has to be our goal and now now the hard stuff this has specific reference to sexual immorality explicitly in chapter 22 also implicitly in chapter 23 if you look down at verse 14 we're told we don't that the lord is not to see anything indecent there in verse 14 like much of what i'm going to say that is euphemistic that means it's a nice way of something that, that's kind of offensive and gross. But it literally means nakedness, and it's a euphemism for, for sexual organs. And so as much as I would like to avoid it, we have to talk about sex this morning. The seventh commandment is do not commit adultery. But as we've done through this series, we will follow the example of the catechism, and we'll apply the command more broadly to all kinds of sexual immorality. And so if you're here and, and you're not married, you might think, you know, well, this doesn't apply to me. No, I promise it does. If you're hearing your teenager, um, this applies to you. No matter who you are in the room this morning, this has application to your life. So hang in there with me this morning as we look at three things very quickly. We want to look at why is the sin of sexual immorality so monstrous? What is the sin beneath the sin of sexual immorality? And how does the gospel offer us hope and healing? Or to put it in these headings, if you'll see there in your outline, sex and marriage, sex and idolatry, sex in the gospel, and then applications, okay? So let's do that together this morning, beginning just with this. Why is the sin of sexual morality so monstrous? Sex and marriage. What is God's design for sexual intimacy? That's the question I ask in your outline. Now, the relevance of this topic can hardly be ignored, right? We live in a hyper-sexualized culture. Sex is everywhere. I did some research this morning, uh, last minute to come in here, Listen to some of these statistics just about divorce. One in three divorces today are caused by adultery, and 50% of all marriages in America deal with adultery. What's interesting is is that while 50% of American marriages have to deal with the issue of adultery, 90% of American people think it's morally wrong. And it's everywhere. Think, Think broader with me. This, this breaks my heart. 60, 66% of girls and 68% of boys. This is interesting that the statistics are so close between boys and girls. 66% of girls, 60, 68% of boys will lose their virginity by the age of 18. That's 7 out of 10. Um, 70% of men 18 to 34 visit websites that are pornographic in nature in a typical month. Hollywood, Hollywood, okay? Hollywood produces 400 films a year. 11,000 pornographic movies are produced every year in America. 
I mean, can we deny the reality of what we're facing as a culture? C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has this hilarious, honestly, I find it funny. You might not. It really is sad at the same time. He has this paragraph where he says, you know, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act. That is to watch a girl undress on the stage. That is true of our culture as well, 50 years after he wrote that of his own. Now, he says, suppose you come to a country where you could fill where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? And would it not anyone who had grown up in a different world think there's something equally queer about the state of sex in uh, uh, the state of the sex ex- instinct among us? Something has gone desperately wrong. Um, the teaching of the Bible consistently is this, just to summarize at the very beginning of our time together this morning, and that is that sexual intimacy should be experienced only within a covenant relationship of complete and exclusive and permanent love and devotion and loyalty. God invented sex as a way for one person to say to another person, I belong completely and exclusively to you. I mean, that's the purpose. That's the design, the physical union that we experience is part of a greater union of a man and a woman who are legally emotionally and socially one and that's why it's so monstrous to be physically one with someone without being one with that person in every other way to be physically naked but not naked in other ways so sex outside of an exclusive permanent commitment to one another in marriage is not love it's selfishly using the other person not loving them and it'll destroy you And so sexual intimacy, let me say, should be experienced only within a covenant relationship of complete and exclusive and permanent love, devotion, and loyalty. Now, look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 22. And in this passage, there are four scenarios that Moses goes through in providing legislation for the people. The first, in verse 22, is very straightforward. It forbids a man to have sex with the wife of another man, and it provides the punishment being death. The woman for breaking her marriage covenant and the man for treating her as his wife when she actually was the wife of another man. She didn't belong to him. The second and the third scenarios forbid a man from lying with a girl who's been betrothed. Now, they're different in the fact that if it was consensual, then both of them were to die. If it was not consensual, then the man was to be put to death, but the woman to be spared. And the reason for that is that in Israel, betrothal or engagement was considered the same as marriage. When a woman was betrothed, she was already in a covenant relationship with another man. Headed towards marriage. The fourth scenario commanded that if a man took a woman who was not betrothed and lay with her, then he was obligated to marry her, to make make her his wife. He had to treat her, he had treated her as his wife, in doing that, and therefore he must go ahead and marry her, and then he could never divorce her. Do you see that teaching there? And so this is the consistent teaching of the Scriptures. Moses talks about it more later in Deuteronomy. Proverbs warns about the danger of adultery and sexual promiscuity in chapters 5 and 7. Jesus obviously talks about the same thing in Matthew 5, and Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7. So the teaching of the Scripture, if I can just keep saying this, is sexual intimacy should be experienced only within 
a covenant relationship of complete and exclusive and permanent love and devotion and loyalty. Now, let me let me make one one caveat to that and to say the command, while it be negative, this command, thou shalt not commit adultery, it implies a beautiful positive, And that is that while sex is prohibited outside of marriage, it is commanded in marriage. So married couples are commanded to pursue one another passionately and to seek intimacy and mutual delight and oneness that leads to the physical act of intimacy and oneness. Did you notice um, one of the duties that the confession lists, which I just laugh at, is conjugal love. It's a duty. And therefore, coldness towards one another, not pursuing one another intimately, is understood to be as much a breaking of the command as the act of adultery. And what is fascinating is I read an account this week in Puritan, you know, New England, where it was a regular practice that wives would go and complain to the elders about their husbands not pursuing them intimately uh, and sexually, and they would put them in the stocks in the town square for the sin. Can you imagine that? I mean, the shame of that's some shame right there. Now, the teaching, the teaching here is just this. We are, being, we are giving, being given insight into the way that we have been made. This is an issue of design. Just like God says, don't eat fatty foods or your body will literally shut down. And if you don't believe it, go Morgan Spurlock, that thing with McDonald's that he did. It's fascinating. His body literally begins to destroy itself. Um, this is an issue of design. God is saying he knows he's made us. He knows what's good for us. He knows what's bad for us. Uh, C.S. Lewis tells another story about a schoolboy who was asked what he thought God was like. And his reply is very uh, famous. He said that as far as he could make out, God was, quote, the sort of person who's always snooping around to see if anyone is enjoying himself and then trying to stop it. Right? And C.S. Lewis goes on to comment on that by saying, morality raises in a good many people's minds something that interferes, something that stops you from having a good time, when in reality, moral rules are directions for running the human machine. Every moral rule is there to prevent a breakdown or a strain or friction in the running of that machine. So the Ten Commandments are not a set of arbitrary rules. God, God's not a prude who doesn't want anybody to have any fun. These Ten Commandments and this command to not commit adultery here, he's trying to show us how we work, what we need to thrive and to be whole and to be happy. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to try to think through this with me. If we've been created by a creator, if we're not just, you know, accidents or the product of random collision of energy molecules or evolutionary processes, if we've been created, then in our createdness is embedded a design. We've been made to work in a certain way, and we ignore, we violate that design at our own peril. And in this case, the design is sex inside a marriage that is characterized by complete and exclusive and permanent love and loyalty. Now, the most shocking part of this to me, did anybody else? The shocking part is the punishment that is prescribed. Death. I mean, let's read that again. Verse 22. If a man is found lying with a wife of another man, both of them shall die. Now, why the death penalty? I mean, what in the world? I mean, okay, that's a little harsh. I really think there's two things there. The first is that the death penalty is given to point to the beauty and the glory of marriage and sexual intimacy and to, in a very strong way, warn 
of the disastrous consequences of violating God's commands. This is real serious stuff. We had a hard day with the kids this week, uh, with our with our boys one day, and um, and you know that happens from time to time in every family. Uh, but I was kind of in the middle of this stuff, and I'm prone to over overreacting. And so Ashley kind of called me and said, "You need to come home." And I came home, and there was repentance, and it was quick. Um, but I just to make sure they got the point. Uh, when I put my kids to bed, when I put my boys to bed that night, I, I, I put them in their bed. I said, I just want you to listen. I'm going to read from you to you from Deuteronomy chapter 21. You ready? If a man is a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father, the voice of his mother, and though they discipline, he will not listen to them. Then his father and his mother shall take hold of them, bring them to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives. The, they shall say, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. I turned off the light. I said, good night, boys. And I left the room. And then I went back a few minutes later. Do you, I, do you understand how serious it is that you obey the instruction of your mom and your dad. God says it's so serious that if you don't, we should take stones and stone you. Do you understand how serious this issue of sexual immorality is and adultery? The capital punishment is death. So we see that, again, one more time, sexual intimacy should be experienced only within a covenant. That's great parenting advice, by the way. I mean, I would suggest, you know, if you have a hard day, Deuteronomy 21. I lost it already. Deuteronomy 21. You can see it there. If you need to post that on your refrigerator at home or anything like that. (laughs) Sexual intimacy should only be experienced within the covenant relationship of complete and exclusive love, devotion, and loyalty. Now, what I want you to see is, let's go to sex and idolatry for just a minute. What I want you to see is the Bible's trying to teach us here that there's a sin beneath the sin of sexual immorality. There's something being revealed about us and our hearts and our ultimate hopes and desires. So we need to talk about sex and idolatry. Because you see, the typical way that we usually uh, try to teach, especially young boys and men, how to deal with sexual temptation, and we'll get back to that in a minute, the typical way we do that betrays how shallow our understanding of the spiritual implications of sex and how the desires behind sex get distorted, how all that works. And to help us with this, I want to read from Jesus's teaching on the subject and I meant to have it Jonathan had it all nice and up here last week and I'm a slacker and so I didn't get it to him but you'll you'll be familiar with the passage in Mark excuse me Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus talks about lust and he comments on this command from the Ten Commandments I'll just read it to you he says you have heard it said you should not commit adultery but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart if your right eye causes you to sin tear it out Throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go down into hell. So Jesus says that adultery is not just about the physical act. His teaching is is that it's about something that's going on in the heart. And he uses the word lust there. And we've looked at this word before. Uh, This word, he says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. It is the word epithumia. And it refers to a good, healthy, appropriate desire that becomes an over-desire. It's, it's a word that refers to a good thing 
that becomes an ultimate thing. And so what Jesus is teaching is sex is good and it's appropriate within the confines of marriage, but it can become too important and we can pursue it too passionately and we can become too consumed with it and it begins to express itself in our lives in all kinds of ways that are inappropriate and destructive. So, for example, looking with lustful intent or desiring in our hearts what doesn't belong to us and what, not, what is not permitted to us, Jesus says, this is idolatry. And an idol is anything that we attach our heart's deepest desires for love and happiness to apart from God. And an idol is something that replaces God at the center of our lives. And Jesus does an amazing thing for us here. He connects adultery to idolatry. And that means that what we're looking for in our sexual exploits is something that really transcends sex itself. G.K. Chesterton has this great phrase that I've remembered since I read it the first time he said, Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. What's he mean by that? And here's part of what I think he means. He means that sexuality is not just about physical urges and desires. It's really about, and I want to define this very carefully for you, it's really about the desire for the physical, emotional, relational oneness and intimacy of marriage as marriage points to the intimacy and oneness we all have been made and long to experience with God himself. Say that again. I'm going to. He's on me about this. That He says, thank you for telling me. That's good. In other words, here's how I'm going to say it differently, and you can tell me which one I need to say again. Behind sexual desire is a desire for marriage love as it is a sign and expression of what it means to be in a loving relationship with God. See that? So it's not really about the desire for sexual intimacy as much as it is for the physical, emotional, relational oneness and intimacy of marriage as marriage points to the intimacy and oneness that we all long to experience with God. Now, let me unpack that one minute. Here we go. We all long to be completely known and at the same time completely delighted in. There's a basic human need to be naked and to feel no shame, but to know what it feels like to be utterly loved and accepted and delighted in. And therefore, sex points to the marriage relationship. That's the design of marriage, that two people, two, would become one. That two very different people would be united into a oneness that transcends every physical act that is spiritual in nature. It's a social and emotional, uh, a spiritual oneness that happens in marriage and what Paul says what Paul says in Ephesians is is he says the two will become one as he's talking about marriage and he says no 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 but I'm not talking about marriage I'm talking about Christ and the church and so sex as it's expressed in marriage is really a parable of the gospel it's a picture of union with Christ it's a foretaste of the complete ecstasy and joy of complete and total union with Jesus. We're looking for God. Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. We desire intimacy and oneness with him. And that's why. That's why it, it's so gross to think you can have physical intimacy without all the other stuff. There's something p- powerful at work there. That when you give yourself in physical intimacy to another person, you're, you're, you're united in such a way that you can't separate that. And so just do that and then move on, you lose a part of yourself. You become less human. Lust is a form of idolatry, the Scripture says. 
And that means that it's not just enough to just set our will to overcome the temptation of lust because being driven, you know, because it's being driven by idolatry underneath the surface. And so what you have to do is you have to not only address sexual temptation, you have to address the issue of idolatry. You have to dig down to the root and bring the gospel down there. It's not a matter of the will. It's a matter of believing the gospel. And so we have to end this morning by talking about sex and the gospel. You see, the ways we typically are taught to deal with sexual temptation show we don't really believe that it's a spiritual heart issue, as Jesus says it is. I told, I told you I've been reading this book by this guy, A.J. Jacobs. It's called The Year of Living Biblically. It is fantastic. I would recommend it to you. He takes a year and he says, I'm going to live, I'm going to follow the rules of the Bible as literally as I possibly can for 365 days. He gets to the issue of the seventh commandment and lust and adultery. And he's just, just going through talking about how he's, you know, managing this. And he tells a story, which is absolutely hilarious, about his friend who invites him to a fashion show in New York City. And he's like, I'm gearing up for this. OK, and he goes through the story and it is just marvelous because he, he has these he has these mental strategies that he that he's going through and he's listening. So strategy number one, think of the girl as out of your league. OK, and so he talks about that for a few minutes and then that doesn't really work. And so he goes on to strategy two: think of her as your mother. Right. And then that kind of works for a while. Then, but, but then number three is recite Bible passages. So and so I quote him, he says, and it worked in a way. My brain was so busy with its recital project, I didn't have time to focus on the dark haired model wearing an extra large rubber band around her chest. You're right. Is it, hmm, maybe it didn't work as well as he thought. <laughs> but, but it's fascinating. He goes on, he says, the meaning of the passage is really beyond the point. I could have probably recited the lyrics from a Beatles song and gotten similar benefit. It's about keeping your mind distracted. <laughs> then what happens is, is then the fashion show ends and his friend introduces him to an Israeli. He's Jewish. His friend introduces him to an, an, an Israeli model who's drunk. And I'm told you, trying to make it PG, but and has a very unique fetish. She likes the side locks that Orthodox Jew, Jewish men wear. Well, he has been growing his hair and happens to have side locks. And so things go from bad to worse. And he writes, okay, here I try out strategy number four. Do not objectify. So I look at fetish girl and I think about everything but her body. Her Israeli childhood, what might be her favorite novel, how many cousins she has, whether she owns a PC or a Mac, but she won't stop looking at me. This isn't working. And so in a panic, I switch to the less evolved but more efficient method. Think of her as your mother. I feel nauseated. Victory. Right? You know? So, <laughs> I mean, it is great. It's, it's, it's fantastic. It, he, you know, and at the end of the story, you just get down there and you think, yeah, whatever. And it's like, that's naive. That doesn't work. And that's kind of the point he's making because... Sex isn't just about physical anatomy and urges and desires. It's a spiritual heart issue. And if you don't address the underlying causes, you won't ever find any victory. If you don't talk about the idolatry beneath the desire and address it and repent of it and rejoice instead of Jesus, it will be baby steps at best. It's why we've experienced so little growth and so little sanctification in this area. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. So, only when our heart's deepest desires to be completely known and at the same time completely delighted in are satisfied will we ever see any progress in our battle with sexual temptation. And only the gospel can do that because you see in the gospel, in the gospel, we learn exactly that. The gospel teaches us that we're completely known. Nothing's hidden from God. 
He sees all the blackest parts of our hearts. He knows how we failed even in this area of sexual temptation. And yet the gospel teaches us that he loves us. He's a friend of sinners because in the gospel we learn that knowing our sin and knowing what it would take to save us, God sent his son into the world to suffer and die in our place. Jesus, who was perfect in every way and deserved only the father's delight and love and affection. Jesus was excluded. On the cross, he took upon himself our filth and our corruption, and God turned away from him in wrath. That's the teaching of the scripture. He turned away from him. He sent him outside the camp. He excluded him so that he could bring in and include scoundrels like you and me. Now, if you believe in Jesus, there will come a day when you will see him face to face. And that experience will finally be what we've all been looking for in every relationship, in every sexual encounter in our whole lives, we will be completely naked and we will be completely delighted in, completely known, completely loved, and there will be no shame and God will look at us through Jesus and he will say, I love you. And that's the thing that your heart wants more than anything else. Do you know that? Teenagers, do you know that? Do you see? You see, The way you fight sexual temptation is to continually bring the truth of the gospel home to your heart so that the heart attaches itself to God in Jesus and is satisfied. That's the only way to beat it. Jesus lived 33 years on the earth and never had sex. The scripture's clear. He was tempted in every way and yet never fell to that temptation. Jesus said no to his sexual desires because he was saving himself for his bride. And that's you. He wanted you more than any earthly pleasure. And if God gives you eyes to see him saying no to himself in order to have you, then that will give you the joy. It'll fill your heart with such overwhelming sense of delight that you will find the strength to say no. Only when you see him saying no. And remember, the one who came and lived in perfect obedience, he is now ascended to the Father in heaven and he has sent his spirit into our hearts to work out the same obedience in our lives. The truth of the gospel is that. But now I know I'm over, but I want to give you three, three practical applications of this as we as we draw to a close. As you think about these scriptures and the call to sexual purity. Three applications. First. Number one, proactively pursue purity. Jesus says, cut off your hand and throw it away or cut out your eye and pluck it, pluck it out and throw it away. The old word the Puritans used was the word mortification. It means to put to death. I mean, literally, I'm the pastor of a church. I have software on my computer because I need it. As much as I'm able, I don't travel alone. I would ask you, men and women, what precautions have you put into place in your life? How are you proactively pursuing purity? Because if you're not, it's going to get you. Secondly, fathers, this is on you. Do you notice how prominently the father plays in the drama of the case law in Deuteronomy 22? Until the house, until the girl leaves his house to get married, she is his responsibility, and the father is expected to take ownership over the sexual purity of his children, especially his daughters. Dads, are you protecting your children from the sexual onslaught of the culture? Are you diligent about what comes into your house and how it could affect your kids? Do you know what they're watching on television and the websites they're going to? Do you talk? Do you talk to them about these things? I'm on my way. They pray for me. I have a nine-year-old. I'm scared to death. 
Do you know who they're dating and what they're doing? And then thirdly, and this is just to use a metaphor, think steering wheel, not brakes. Okay? How you fight sexual temptation is not, okay, here's the list of things I've got to stop doing. Of course that's true, but you better figure out what you need to stop doing in order to give yourself to the things that God has already commanded you to do that you're not doing. Are you pursuing the means of grace? Are you participating in community Bible reading? How are you doing what we just said? How are you, what, what instrumentalities, what methods, what practices are you using to bring the, the heart, truth of the gospel home to your heart so that your heart attaches itself to God and Jesus and is satisfied and therefore the desire for the lust that is underneath it, the desire for sex is just completely taken, you know, it's undercut. How are you doing that? Boy, we've got work to do, but I pray for the day when this church and when the churches in our city and when the Christian church in general can stand and be a mirror to the world of a totally different way of doing things in obedience to the commands of God, which have been given to us, not because God's a prude and doesn't want us to have any fun, but because he's made us and he knows what's good for us. And so let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come and um, that you would take the truth of this teaching in your scripture home to our hearts, that, that we would even maybe for the first time realize that what our hearts truly long for is to know you and to be one with you and to be intimate with you, that every other longing for intimacy and every other desire for, for, for sexual pleasure and delight is really a, a desire for the delight and the pleasure that can only be had in coming to know you and being, being united with you by faith in Jesus Christ. Would you come now as we sing together and would you begin to move our hearts toward Jesus? May we experience the delight and the satisfaction of knowing you completely and being known by you and being loved. And may it begin to change our hearts and our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Uh, now, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, uh, then all that your heart longs for, you can find in him. So the promise of the benediction is just that, to so receive the benediction this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.